Welcome to the Constructed Futures podcast. I'm Hugh Seaton, and today I've got Matt Marr of M7 Innovations. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Tell us a little bit about what you do. Well, Hugh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, so I'm the founder of uh, M7 Innovations, uh, and we are a technology creative innovation firm. Uh, and what we do is we help companies navigate emerging media platforms and new technologies. Um, so from augmented reality to virtual reality, uh, voice uh, and machine learning, basically any consumer touch point that exists in the physical um, or the digital world. So our clients kind of span the gamut, you know, um, fast, casual construction, finance, luxury. We work with uh, Suffolk Construction. We work with Panera Bread, Chanel, uh, Nickelodeon, uh, Bole, Cox Automotive. So we're kind of all spread out, but our specialty is really about um, these emerging technologies and media platforms. And since we're our focus in this podcast is very much on the, the built environment, let's talk a little bit about uh, how you found construction technology generally because you've obviously selling advanced solutions into companies that have been doing th- a lot some of the things they do the same way for a long time so how have you found that it's a great question with with construction i think and something you probably deal with too when you look at all these different industries what are the most disruptable and i think construction um, was dying dying for innovation just the way processes happened for 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 generations honestly and when you look at the 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 upward trend of technologies and all these trends that are happening, it looks like construction was just so ripe. Now, there are so many big players in there. Um, Suffolk Construction, who I work with, was that player that that lives in that innovative space. They're constantly reinventing themselves. They're constantly looking for that next breakthrough. So the synergy there just existed. And when I first got introduced to them and, and, and met John Fish, the CEO there, I, I could tell their vision was five, 10 years ahead. Um, and that's really where you need to be in the construction space. It can't just be solving the exact problem today. It really is looking to the future and almost reverse engineering to that future that you want. And that's the only way change can really happen. So I found it fascinating um, to, to work in this construction industry. And I, I mean, Suffolk is known for, for really putting their money where their mouth is, right? I mean, they were building VR caves a decade ago. Yeah. Have you, have you seen some of what they're doing? Oh, there? Yeah, it's been amazing. And, and honestly, it, it was kind of a, you know, I, I didn't, when I started M7 Innovations, didn't initially say, okay, I'm going, you know, directly after the construction vertical, directly after the QSR vertical. Um, but why I got introduced to Suffolk, their CMO, Leah Stendhal, who's just been a, amazing in the in the creative world over at E-Trade and everything she's done. She went over to Suffolk and the way they were rebranding, the way they were thinking was so innovative. Um, and I remember my first meeting with her a couple of years ago. Um, and I, I kind of, you know, initially was, you know, construction, I, it's going to take so long to actually implement anything. And it's, you know, when you think down the chain of how hard it is to implement this and understanding how Suffolk worked, I saw, no, like their vision is there. And if you truly believe in it and you actually take in these technologies, then you're able to just go so much further, so much faster. So I was instantly a believer. Um, and now that we're actually in and living it and pushing things forward, um, you just start to see how you can solve all these problems uh, in the built world. And let's um, kind of drill in on one of those technologies. So I, I some folks that I work, work with you on, on uh, something actually also for Suffolk where you used augmented reality. Let's talk a little bit about what we mean by augmented reality and then maybe talk a little bit about what you did. Yeah, I mean, augmented reality, um, there's just, there's so many ways it can work. And I, I initially came in saying, you know, AR might not be the best solution for construction. 
in theory it is, right? To overlay digital objects onto a physical world, the core of what AR is, sounds amazing. To overlay the plumbing lines, to overlay um, you know, where the crane's going to be, to understand all these things up front would be absolutely amazing. But the problem is accuracy and you need hyper accuracy. You're a centimeter off when you're laying your plumbing. You could have yourself a you know, $100 million mistake in the future. So initially, there was hype of AR say, okay, it's going to work. We're going to have all these headsets, these hollow lenses. We actually pulled back a little bit um, and said, let's, let, what can we do now? Where can AR be useful? And we think of BIM models. We think of their CAD models, all the work, these 100 gigabyte models that get built um, and then when we're, you know, showing prospective clients or, or, or walking through these, you know, we're looking at a 2D screen, right? We're looking at an unbelievable amount of work that went to an unbelievably detailed model. And we're just kind of scrolling it around on a screen and kind of zooming in and showing it. Um, at the best level, we're in the cave looking at it, which is amazing, this VR environment. But that's, you know, you can't, you can't replicate a cave all over the world um, at, at this moment. So with AR, it said, why don't we actually pull this model off of this 2D screen and put it in an augmented reality environment. Now you can walk around it. Now you can actually see the model itself. You can lean in, you can expect it, you can zoom in, you can tap, you can actually interact with it, which is actually a new way to tell the story of how you'd actually build. And you're doing this using, uh, obviously on the high end, you can do it with a, a one of these Microsoft HoloLens. So for those of us who, for those of you who are listening to this and aren't familiar, this is basically a, a, a you know a hat you put on that has a visor in front of you that allows you to see the world, but also see virtual objects like a like a BIM model as if it were hanging in space. But the other way that I think you've also looked at is um, just using a, an, an iPad or even a phone, where right where it recognizes the scene and it and it puts in in it so that when you're looking through your phone, you can see the scene behind it, the room you're in but you can see other things that are there. So whether it's a model, something you can size differently, you can you know, make it huge, make it small, as, as you said, dive in and inspect. Do you, do you find right now that most of the times you're doing AR, it's with, a, uh, with just normal mobile or are you working with HoloLens more? You know, it, it's split. I'd say we we use the iPad a lot. Um, and if you think about it, you know, the the twelve point nine inch iPad or the eleven inch iPad. I like to think of it as a, as a window into that augmented reality world, and that's a pretty sizable window, right? Because you're holding it, uh, and you can hold it as close or far away from your face as you want, but you're in control of it. So the form function of the iPad has actually been really useful. It also is easy to hand off. Um, the HoloLens is definitely a more immersive experience, right? As you said, it's that helmet you put on and then your field of vision changes because now you have augmented uh, you know, artificial objects, digital objects being placed on the physical world. So you're fully immersed in it. So and your hands are free. And your hands are free, exactly. Your hands are free, so you're actually able to like just physically move. Where with the iPad, um, you know, your two hands are your one hand kind of looking. Um, but they're both really functional. I will say... You know, we've done a few things with the iPhone. It's trickier there, right? When you're dealing in the realm of five to seven inches of a screen, to get really detailed is difficult. So, you know, we believe the medium is the message, right? If we have an iPad or we have a HoloLens, we're able to go more detailed. If we're going to be used the phone, we we pare it down to make it a little bit more simple. And but when you're making it for one or the other, for for um for an iPad or an iPhone, I mean, it's the same experience you just you 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 prefer to view it in something larger or do you make it specifically for iPads 
we initially did it, made it, made it specifically for iPads. And then from there, it's like we port it down to an iPhone to make it simpler, or we change it or adapt it slightly for the HoloLens, um, you know, add more depth, add more hot points, or certain points that just for that experience make it a little bit better. But yeah, it's generally built for that, let's call it 11-inch screen, that 11-inch window into the AR world. And then from there, we can pair, pair it up or pair it down. You actually brought something interesting up just now with this idea of, of hot zones or hot spots. I forgot what word you use. But one of the interesting things that we're getting better at with augmented reality is how to make it more than just viewing something, but how to interact with it. The HoloLens has this you know, little clip, like you're, you're tapping your, your forefinger and your thumb together as a mouse click. But I understand that you also have done some things with technologies beyond just AR, like voice. Want to talk a little bit about how that works? Yes. Voice is just, it's a fascinating technology. I mean, you look at the numbers. Um, when we think of, let's think of Google search, right? Google search has been around for almost 25 years now. If you think of Alexa, you know, she's about to celebrate, I believe her fifth birthday, uh, Google assistant is going to turn four. Um, so these technologies are, are brand new, but at the same time, we're seeing the data that shows that more than half of voice searches are coming, more, I'm sorry, more than half of searches are coming through voice. So it's an exponential growth. And it makes sense because when you think of voice technology, you know, there's a learning curve for every other UI, meaning for, you know, Gen Xers who grew up with computers. I mean, you have to learn how to click, how to drag, how to tab. Uh, you think of millennials, it's mobile, but that's still pinch, that's zoom, that's swipe. And when it comes to voice, if you have language, if you can speak, then you've mastered the UI. Um, so voice technology has grown so quickly. Um, and then you start to think of all the tasks that you have in front of you, you know, to be able to say one thing, and we call it first order retrievability, to, to make one single statement and pull out seven intents from it and, and from seven spots of information and give you that single answer that you need it's just so simple. So we're starting to explore what are the pain points on job sites uh, in the office? What are things that we can make more efficient? Because as you know, in the built world, you know, time is money. Um, so the longer it takes, as simple as a 30-minute walk from the top of a site to the construction trailer to take a note or to call somebody, we can eliminate that. Just think of the efficiencies you can find. Earlier, you talked also, though, about how you know, look, there's a lot of agreement that construction is one of those industries that has a lot of room to adopt new technologies, improve some of the processes, streamline things. And it feels like voice removes a barrier to, to some of these technologies, right? Because now I, you don't have to learn how to navigate through a bunch of, of menus and windows and all this where you can just ask for something directly. And that's that's exactly it, Hugh. It's like you can you can get your direct answer. And it can be as simple as you know, call the head PM, and it makes a phone call. Or it can be um, as complex as you know, w when is the oil pour coming? You know, where uh, what is the weather late? Like it can be simple things, or it can be unbelievably complex to get you answers. And as long as you have the data repositories, the information generally at most of these comp companies exists. It's just organizing it and deploying it to you in a really simple way. And, and the most important part, I mean, job sites can be dangerous, right? There are a lot of things going on and you think you don't want to be looking down at a phone, looking down at a tablet as you're walking around. The ability to be heads up and use your voice as a control and have your hands free and your eyes ahead, I mean, it's just safer. How do you get around the kind of Siri problem? So lots of people had Siri more than five years ago. They maybe launched it a little early, but 
you know, and, and for a while there, it was frustrating. It, could, it couldn't even call, you know, call home. Um, it's gotten better over time. But the reality is that you're asking, you know, what is still a computer, nowhere near as broad or, or um, kind of context aware as a human. So you're, you're talking to this thing. Uh, how do you keep it from getting confused or giving you time-wasting answers? It, it's one of the best questions because you're right. This is a type of technology, and think about it with construction, right? If it doesn't get the query right, if it doesn't understand the intent, one, two times the chance that a PM is going to do it a third time is probably 0.01%. Um, so you're right. It has to be correct. So in order to, to get there, this goes back to, you know, right before we started, we, we talked about kind of the custom building. When it comes to voice, Alexa is unbelievable. Google's unbelievable. But when you're trying to build this for a job site, you really need to build it yourself. Meaning it doesn't matter that Alexa can answer 5 million queries. She probably needs four on that job site that are ultra important. So you want the natural language processor, which is understanding the NLP and the NLU, the natural language understanding to know what you're saying and what you mean from it. We need that to be spot on. So we're better off with just four intents that are nailed 100% of the time than 5 million intents that could possibly be right or wrong. So I think the answer there is you really have to build it for what you need. Uh, and layer on these NLPs and NLUs and even stack them on top of each other. You can use Alexas, but you don't. You want to build your own on top to make sure you cannot mess up these four intents. When someone asks you, you know, what time the concrete pour is coming, it ha you know that's going to be the answer that you're going to give. So I think, again, it's building it from that ground up. You bring up a bigger point, which is worth spending a second on. And that is, you know, we a lot of people have delved into and, and kind of dabbled with, with artificial intelligence. I've built a few things. I've been part of teams that have built more than a few things. One thing that, that doesn't always come out is how narrow AI needs to be. So, I mean, what you talked about a moment ago is a good point generally about, about whether it's using AI for voice or AI for machine vision or for anything else. You want to make the, the – this is also an argument for customization, but you want to make the problem – as focused and narrow as possible because AI doesn't think for all the fact that, you, you know, it's so funny. Whenever you see, I see a picture of a robot and someone's talking about really, really simple AI. It's, you know what I mean? Like these futuristic Isaac Asimov robots. And it's like, well, that's not really what that is. You got a narrow little tool that can do one thing. Well, have you found that when you guys make these sorts of things that, that narrowness is one of the key parts that you look for? It is probably the, the, the most important thing we look for because it goes back to what you said, Hugh. It's, it, it can't mess up. It can't be the Siri problem because if, if it messes up, you're just going to instantly lose that trust that it's going to be reliable for you as a source of information. So you have to be unbelievably narrow. I mean, I'll, I'll give the example. I mentioned first order retrievability. Um, so if you, you take a, like, what's a, a standard phrase or something that someone might want to know at PM? It's like something like, you know, how many, employees on site have completed the safety orientation. It's a, it's a, it's a basic question that we'd want an answer to. But if you break that down, it, it's pulling from different repositories that are very narrow. So I said, how many employees you know, on site have completed safety orientation? How many? I'm looking for a quantity. Employees, I'm looking for a type of person on site. I'm now focused on a location out of all the job sites have completed. I'm now looking for a fulfillment. Completed, incomplete, haven't done it. Safety orientation. I'm looking for a task. So even in that simple sentence, there are five different intents there, five different repositories I'm pulling from 
but I'm looking to get that one answer that says 120 employees have finished this orientation on this job site. That's a 93% completion rate. So it seems like such a simple question, but it has to be built to say, okay, here are the five repositories we need. And if this question comes up, we're going to be able to give that answer right away. Because if one of those five is not thought of, then the answer is going to be broken. Because if they don't know how many employees, they don't know if it was completed, the AI doesn't know which site they're talking about, then my answer is effectively useless. So we almost take those use cases of what are questions you'd ask and then reverse engineer of how we'd actually build the tech. Yeah, it's funny. There's a couple of things that come out of this, a couple of analogies. One of them is you wouldn't expect an, any other tool to work all the time, right? Like like in Roman times, one hammer worked all the time, but now you, know, you, have, you have a toolkit that fits and does the job better than a general tool. And you know, AI voice is the same thing, um, which I, I find is a, probably a good analogy. Um, interesting about this, this discoverability. I mean, I think one, one of the things that comes up with any software, but it really matters in AI also is this idea of edge cases and, and kind of training, right? So, so you, 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 you're going to do your best to reverse engineer or just engineer, and you're probably not going to get it all right. So one of the things that modern systems can do is record when someone, when it broke, now, hopefully that doesn't happen a lot. That's what you know, quality assurance is. But you have the ability to make this thing better. That's why Siri isn't anywhere near as frustrating as it was years ago. Now they, <laughs> God knows how many, you know, how much data they're playing with. Um, but you know, do you find that you, you know, part of deployment is is and really working with a client is figuring out what they need, but then going back and saying, okay, well, we were mostly right, but here's some extras. Yes. And that, I think the most important part about voice or any artificial intelligence for everyone to know is that it does get smarter. It does get better. And if you have those guardrails up, you're able to understand um, what exactly failed and how to make it better. The the example I love to use is when Alexa first came out, um, there was actually there were people behind screens that were, were catching um, some of what people were saying. Now, this is before all the, the privacy and, and issues that came up and before the AI was smart enough to self-correct. Um, but it was a great story where it was near Thanksgiving weekend. And I think it was there were 100 queries of how to hard boil an egg. And she couldn't answer that. She just didn't have that ability to answer that question. And they had all these thresholds set up. So when she failed 100 times on how to hard boil an egg, it got flagged to a human who said, well, we need an answer for this now. And then within about an hour, Alexa automatically now knows how to hard boil an egg. So to your point, failure is part of the learning process because you can plan uh, for what you think people are going to say, what you think they're going to search for with their voice. But human beings are very fickle and very unpredictable. And they may just, the way they phrase things, the way they say things just might be different. And you need that data to understand where these failures are so you can, can kind of correct in real time. But I'd also say just from a kind of user experience standpoint, the way around some of that is, is you know, because it's, it's software. You can tell it, well, if you don't know what to do, don't sit there and keep saying, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like I, when I've done, I've done some voice obviously myself. And the, the first thing you learn is how to get out quickly. So someone isn't being driven nuts by a circle of questions. Um, you know what I mean? Like there's ways that you can work with this that are more creative than they are technological to say, I can, you know, really, I only can answer these sorts of questions or I didn't understand that. Perhaps you should look at a manual. So that you're not, you know, you don't have somebody on a job site ready to throw their phone on the ground because they, you know, they've been, it's almost like, <laughs> the, it's almost like the, you know, the worst, uh, the worst call to your cable company. <laughs> where yeah. it never ends. 
I um, actually, I love that you brought that up, Hugh. It is such an important part. I, so I work with the rain agency a ton. They're like one of the, I would argue the best in the world when it comes to voice and work with a ton of fortune 100 companies. And, and they believe that too. That, and they've said it's, it's the wrong answer that often is more important than the right answer because you, you hit the nail on the head there. If you get the wrong answer, you get into that feedback loop. It's not just, it's not just frustrating. I would argue, um, it, it's breaking trust. It's you, you, you start to th- think that this will be a source of information. You can use this. And all of a sudden, when it fails two times in the same way, three times in the same way, you know very well you're talking to a robot. You know that this is broken and you've kind of lost that conversation. And I think why voice has started to explode is when, when Alexa can answer things, when Google can answer things, it starts to build slivers of trust of saying, okay, she answered these five things, right? I wonder if she can also answer this. And the second year fail response is, is exactly what you said, where it's like, sorry, don't understand. Sorry, don't understand. You're like, I'm talking to a robot and this stupid thing is never going to understand what I want. So when you're able to carefully craft that they don't know the answer, I don't know, but you kind of either sidestep it or offer another solution, or you're just honest. And and you write the code that basically says, I'm really sorry, I don't know that, but I'm learning every single day, I'll learn soon. You know, it's it's even admitting you're wrong there kind of hits that oxytocin or that that chemical inside of you that's like, okay, the, the robot's really trying, I'll try again later. But you're, you're right, it's so important that failed answer is more important than the right answer. You actually, and you hit that you talked about something else that's important is, is when, when it is still uh, an AI or voice agent robot on the back end, trying to pretend like it's not doesn't work. And, and I'll tell you, the, the, interestingly, yeah, it's bad when the thing keeps asking a question. It's sometimes worse when it, it does things that seem really frustratingly like stupid. So it'll misclassify a question and give you an, an answer that's unrelated. Like I want to do my daily reports and it says, oh, well, the, the concrete pour is happening at 4 p.m. Like, hang on a minute. That <laughs> so I think the other piece that that we're getting better at, a lot better at actually, is is that, is is either acknowledging that this isn't a person. Now, honestly, in a, in a construction application, you probably don't think there's a human on the other end of the line. Um, but even so, you know, really organizing the flow of information so that it's less likely you're keeping the problem narrow, even if it doesn't feel narrow to the user. Yeah. And I think that's, it's just, honestly, it's, it's a way to be honest in how you build the technology. And I think that's, it's, it's a very big point of it. It's not going to be perfect and it's okay that it's not going to be perfect. Um, the, the more you can admit your mistakes and the more you can try to sound human and realize that, yeah, as you said, you're, we know we're talking to a robot. Um, you don't need to fool anyone. I think that's a lot of the problem with uh, how these things are built is, it's all the Turing test, right? We're all like trying to fool humans to think that they're actually talking to a human. Yeah. But the reality is humans are actually unbelievably, they're perceptible. They know that they're not, they're smart. It's it's hard to actually trick a human into that. So by accepting that, by putting that as table stakes, knowing that this is only meant to help, we're not trying to outsmart you, it instantly becomes more useful. I think that's a, a bigger point. Um, and that is that we we have a tendency to compare artificial intelligence to humans, which is not the right comparison. We should be comparing it to other software because compared to humans, you just, like you just said, is, you know, you, you sniff it out pretty quickly that it's not. And now you're annoyed as opposed to saying the other option to this would have been texting the whole time. 
And you know what I mean? Like, look at how much better this is than texting or walking downstairs to go actually see something or even just pulling out your, your, um, uh, your tablet <clears throat> and going through Procore Pro to find a, a drawing. I think it's still going to be valuable, but, but it's just being, being careful to compare things and put them in the right context. I think you actually even hit on a bigger point of that. When you look at all the different verticals, construction is one. When you think of you know, the, the folks that have spent a decade, generations in construction, their experience is, is unbelievable. This isn't like, you know, uh, we're, we're going into a Google or an Amazon. We're saying, okay, these, these new, you know, career starts at 22, we're going to, you know, we're going to adopt a voice. And of course, yeah, let's try it out. Let's try it out. You're dealing with folks in construction that are highly experienced, have done things their way and have done it really, really well and have found success. And to go to them and say, hey, there's a new solution. It's going to be even better. I understand in that world to come back and say, well, I've been doing it this way and it's it's been pretty successful. So why are you going to add a new technology, something new, a new learning curve that I have to learn um, when the way I've done it has been good? And to your point, if the technology if it's going to make your life easier, if you can prove out, okay, well, listen, you talk to this PM, this actually takes you 35 minutes to do this, this one task. What if that could be done in, in two minutes? And what if we could build you something where all you had to do is say this and we could solve that? Would that make your life easier? If the answer is yes, then you build for that. But in the construction world, I don't think you, that's why I say we can't go off the shelf. You can't just throw on to a PM or a PX, hey, here's a new technology, start using it. We promise it'll be better eventually. You really need that use case. You need to prove out to say, this will make you more efficient, I promise. Try it and then prove it to them because they have the experience and the success in their career to, to believe that it might not be useful. You know, it's, it's funny, in, in the, the software world, um, venture capitalists will often say it's not worth investing in the technology unless it's 10 times better than what it's replacing. <laughs> I, I think that's not a bad kind of, you know, guideline for thinking about technology that goes into construction because you've got, you know, busy folks who are have a lot on their minds, including staying safe, including the weather, including 10 other things. It, it's not a lot better you're going to find that somebody who maybe is really excited about technology will use it. But generally, people are going to say, this isn't worth the time for me to learn this new thing and change my the way I do this. Um, and I think you see that a lot. I think you see a lot of point solutions that struggle because they're not 10 times better. They're just a little better, or maybe they're not even better. Have you come across that? Well, we have. And I think more so, just human beings are so adaptable. And when you do things that take all these extra steps, I don't think cognitively you even realize the friction to actually get from point A to point B. It's just what you're used to. Um, and because humans adapt to it, it's just what you do. So a lot of the work, what Rain does too, which I, why I love working with this so much, is, is this discovery. It's discovering what are actually the pain points. You know, you may think there's pain points A, B, and C, but when you actually see someone through their day, you can see a task they do and say, wow, that actually is really inefficient. I know it, it may be easy and it's how you've always done it, but those are seven steps that we could probably knock down to two steps. So I think it's it's understanding where there are pain points and it's understanding where you can make things more efficient. I'd say we're also in a world where, you know, with mobile phones, everything is way more efficient. But I'll I'll use one example of of, of mobile versus voice. Um, and it was just a couple of weeks ago I was watching the latest Mission Impossible movie. Um, and Tom Cruise, you know, he looks like he's 20 years old. So I'm like, how, how old is this guy? Scientology is just doing wonders for him. Apparently. So I, if I want to use my mobile phone, it is quick. But the reality is this, right? I pick up my phone. I do face ID. I swipe up. 
I navigate to Safari. I navigate to Google, uh, search bar, type in Tom Cruise age, enter, boom, I have my answer. Now, relatively quick, right? And 20 years ago, it would have taken a lot longer, you know, but that was uh, about nine to 11 steps and it was about nine to 10 seconds to get my answer, as opposed to not leaving the couch, leaning over my shoulder, you know, hey, Alexa, how old is Tom Cruise? Answer delivered. Now, that doesn't exactly translate exactly to the built world, but that's just the example that it was actually really easy to find out his age on my mobile phone, but it took me almost 11 steps and I was one step away if I just used voice. So that's my point of breaking that behavior. It's not that the mobile phone was hard to do, but there was a quicker way to do it. And until I did it once and realized, oh, I'm just going to do it this way now because it's so much easier. That's what we need to do in this world is convince these PMs and convince everyone that it actually could be easier. And the way you're doing it, while while it seems right and quick, there could be a better way. And voice is a lot of the time that solution. Well, just like any other tool, though, it, 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 you're not saying, okay, everything has to be on voice. What happens is you say simple things like, what time is the meeting tomorrow? You know, what's Tom Cruise's age? No, no, really, what's his age? No, no, really, what's his age? Um, that sort of thing you can, you know, simple searches like that are great because they are, they're narrow. Um, it's easy to say, no, I meant this. Um, and it's a pain to your point for a pretty small bit of information that just allows you to plan your day a little better or just think about, you know, confidently, okay, I know I'm in good shape for the next four hours or whatever it is. It's really great to just be able to ask as if you were had a real assistant there. I think that's an, another analogy that's kind of helpful is what if you had a junior assistant you could just ask and they were shadowing you? The junior assistant isn't going to be able to give you complex or really deep answers. They're going to be able to tell you things like, yes, this is coming up or, you know, no, the plans for, you know, the, the fourth the fourth floor back room are over here, um, as, as I say, as opposed to something more complex. I think that's where we're seeing voice really work out. So two points there, Hugh. I actually love that analogy. I actually haven't, I hadn't heard that, but that actually is such, I'm going to steal that from you. It's such a crystallized way to do it. You're right. It's the same thing as actually having, yeah, call it an assistant that's a little green that can give you information. Actually, I think that's a really succinct way to put it. I think what's important to remember too, and this is also I'll go back to Suffolk and why I think they're they're so innovative. And you mentioned this before. Yeah, the voice voice is not the be all end all. That is not going to solve all the problems on a job site, not by a long stretch, but it's going to solve some problems. And I think that's a, a key piece of what I do love about Suffolk. It's it's not going all in on voice. It's realizing that can solve maybe A and B. Maybe augmented reality can solve C and D. Maybe NFC near field communications can solve E and F. But it's it's stacking all these technologies on top of each other. But at its core, solving the problems of your employees. I think that's a huge piece in construction. That across the industry, it's what's the shiny new thing? What's the new tech that we can just slap onto a job site and hope it works? But at the end of the day, it's it's human beings that are really building these buildings, and that's what you have to cater to. There was a, I forgot who said this, but but I think it was a, a guy from Google who was running their VR, AR program. But he said, if you think about the history of technology from the printing press to now, one major arc of that story has been making, removing barriers between people and information. So the, you know, the printing press meant, meant that everybody could have a book, which was actually an, an enormous change. Broadcast did the, did the same thing as everybody could now hear stories and hear um, you know, hear real performances. TV took that a step further. At the same time, magazines did the same thing as they made they made really high quality um, ideas and concepts and art 
capable of being, you know, distributed to everybody. The internet obviously did that as well, right? It just made, it made essentially every form of information available to every person who had a device that could access it. What we're seeing with some of what you're describing is almost like the personal version of that, right? Where between AR, where you can see things that are graphic, things that are spatial, things that are 3D, and voice, where you can see where you're able to a little bit more abstract or task-oriented communications. How do you see those blending? So it's a great question. It's, I'm trying to think of how to, how to approach. They, they, they blend. At, there's so many intersection points, but it's not like a general intersection point of like, well, here's how AR and voice fit together. Here's how NFC uh, and virtual reality fit together. <clears throat> Again, I, I argue it's, it's for whatever the use case is. I'd say on job sites, the overarching piece is efficiency, right? What does efficiency mean on a job site? It means that you're going to save a lot of money. You're going to build your building on time uh, and everyone seemingly is going to be happy. And to get to that solution, you have to stack a few of these technologies uh, on top of each other. Now, to your point, I think people believe that these technologies are in silos, but there actually are a lot more intersection points. You think of voice calling up information. Well, we talked about augmented reality. What if you use voice to call up the AR model in front of you? So I think there are these intersection points where you know, these technologies do blend together, but again, only in the use case that you need. It's amazingly cool to have voice pull up AR and then tap your phone and an NFC thing happens. That's great, but that might not be useful. So I think it's finding the use cases within each one of those technologies. And then when that intersection point happens, making sure it's really useful and they know how to use it. That's awesome. And I think that the two of them blending you're right. It is going to be a little bit application specific. I want to shift gears real quick. You've mentioned NFC a few times. So let's talk a little bit about what that means. So what is NFC starting with? What does NFC stand for? Yeah. So NFC is, is near field communications. Uh, you know, it sounds complicated. It sounds like an acronym, but I think everyone listening will know what it is. If you've ever heard of Apple Pay or Google Pay, Google Wallet, Android Pay, that's all powered by NFC. So we've been using NFC actually for years. It's on our phones, but it's that ability to tap um, and pay. So payment is just one small piece of NFC, um, but NFC is actually so much larger. So we argue, you know, wearables, we, 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 we always love to talk technologies of virtual reality, you know, wearables kind of died. Um, I would argue that the smartphone is the single greatest wearable because I'm hard pressed to believe that people leave their phones around, right? They're always on them. So if you think of your phone as a wearable um, and it has NFC, you're essentially able to tap and receive information from any NFC touch point. Now, the reason, just to give some background, you know, on Google phones, on Android phones, pixels, um, NFC is native. And what that means is I mentioned Apple Pay, I mentioned Google Pay. You can only really use NFC to pay for something. Um, but these phones have made it native, meaning if you tap anything that's NFC enabled, you can pay, you can receive information, it can trigger a text message, it can call somebody, it can do anything. Um, and now... Say that again? So it can be like pressing a button, like things that we're not used to doing other ways can be kind of triggered by, by the NFC. Exactly. I like to think about your phone becomes a key that can unlock anything. Um, with Apple now, anything from the, the iPhone XR, XS, and on is all native NFC as well. Um, so it's going to take time for people to realize that it's not just paying for things and you can tap things, but your phone then becomes a key. And every point in a physical world 
would eventually be able to be tapped and give you information. Now, we when you see three bars lined up on the top right of your computer, you generally think, oh, Wi-Fi. We know the symbol for Wi-Fi. That's a ubiquitous symbol. You know, 25 years ago, we wouldn't have known what that symbol is. So what we need to get to a point for what the ubiquitous NFC symbol is. But what that really does is it gives us digital touch points in the physical world where we can use our phone to tap and any experience can happen. So it's it's wide to think of because there's so much you could really do and we can drill down on the use cases. But it, it is very important to think of because we know everyone is walking around with their phones. And as your phone becomes a key that can unlock information from your physical world, it's a very exciting concept. And how are you seeing that? Like, what are some specific use cases you're, you're seeing that either now or, or maybe possibly in the future? And if it's stuff you're working on, we can stake on a high level. But what, how do you see that being useful? Yeah, so I'll, I'll stay high level because there are a lot of initiatives going on with Suffolk now that are very exciting coming out in the future, and I can't delve too deep in them. But yeah, let's go. Let's just talk about basic basic things, right? So think of actual job sites, right? How many people walk by a job site a day? How many people wonder what's actually going on? Wondering what the building's going to look like? Wondering when it's going to be loud because my apartment's over there. I mean, how do you get that information, right? You, you can Google it, you can look it up, you can try to find a phone number. I mean, is there a world where you can you know, see a, an NFC touchpoint tap and be given information and find out exactly what's happening that day in real time? You know, that's, that's a use case for passersby. Let's go on to the job site. Um, say there's something that happens, right? A rain is coming. Um, we know there's weather, the concrete pour is coming. There's 42 phone calls you have to make to shift all scheduling um, or... You know, is there a way where you can tap something and instantly it makes a phone call to the head PM where you can uh, let them know exactly what's going on and you're not unlocking your phone, going through your context, finding who the person is? Um, there's use cases essentially everywhere. It's eliminating all these steps or it's being extremely contextual in the moment. This is going to be a little bit tangential and it goes into the QSR world, but even lunchtime, right? There's, there's 300 people on a job site that need to eat. They're all waiting in line. Can there be an NFC enabled menu board? You go up, you tap the four things that you want. It starts your order. And in 10 minutes, you go pick it up. That That's an efficiency in and of itself. So when you start to drill down on use cases, I mean, we could go on and on for ways that NFC could be useful both on-site and for passersby. So it feels like one of the parts that's inherent in this or implied is that it allows identity. So, so it isn't just that you're asking for a thing. It's, it's because it's your phone, which, you know, you, you have a biometric, whether it's your, your face or your thumb or whatever it might be, but it allow, or just the fact that you've signed into your phone securely, that it allows identity. So things that where identity is important. So I know that it was Matt who, who signed in over here when he was supposed to. I know that it was Matt who signed out. And also, I believe NFC is coming to watches, correct? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's in the Apple Watch. So you make a great point there, but I do want to dive in for a second because privacy is a huge piece with NFC. NFC as a technology doesn't have to have identity. So the, the good piece that separates uh, RFID, which is radio frequency from NFC, with NFC, you can tap and the data point is an opt-in data point. Meaning once you tap, it knows that this phone, this device ID tapped this NFC touch point uh, at you know this timestamp. Um, but it doesn't have to know identity right in that moment. To your point, if you do have you know an application or you do have a code with an NFC that does enable identity, 
it A, becomes more useful, and then B, yeah, goes another layer deeper because then it can know it is Hugh that is tapping, it is Matt that is tapping. But what I like about NFC, the duality, is you can still have privacy and and not do identity, um, or you can go a little bit deeper and allow it if you want, but it's not a one-size-fits-all, which is kind of nice. That's uh, that's really cool. And again, as, as different wearables become more of a thing, um, you can see how that would just add another layer of, of understanding of what's going on in a job site. How do you think broadening out this idea of what's going on in a job site? It's, it feels like Internet of Things where you've got a bunch of sensors that are sort of tied together into one picture of what's going on should be, a, a, I don't want to say no brainer, but a, an obvious use case. Uh, or application for the the construction site. Do you see that that sort of thing has happened? Have you seen IoT in the field? So believe it or not, one of the the trickiest things with IoT is connectivity. A lot of job sites, because they're not actually built buildings yet, don't actually have Wi-Fi. Cellular is actually really bad. That's one thing that that always holds up really high connectivity um, and powering um, IoT devices. That being said, I mean, there are solutions that can be put in place that can make it work. I'm slowly seeing the adoption of IoT, but not in a way where it's a completely connected, smart job site, more in, in smaller use cases um, and using certain gadgets and or certain things to understand. Um, but it, it, it increases and starts to grow. Uh, you know, This maybe necessarily isn't IoT, but in a way it feels like it's smart vid Um, partners with Suffolk and they deploy that on all their sites. Those are cameras that are essentially watching the site and that's image recognition, understanding who's wearing a construction helmet, who's not. That's kind of giving an overall picture um, of the site. But again, this is why I say stacking technologies. Someone doesn't wear a helmet and now we know there's a 95% chance of a possible injury you know, in order for that signal flag to hit SmartVid to make a PM aware and then tell that person to put the helmet on, that doesn't happen within two seconds, right? So when you start to think of, okay, well, this person doesn't have a helmet, SmartVid actually has registered it. Um, He also walked past this IoT sensor, which noticed that he also was not protected, which then, you know, sent off a local alarm to him in real time that made him put his helmet on, that's stacking on it, right? Like, so I think that's when we start to think of IoT. Again, it's not a be-all, end-all solution, but when you find the intersection points of these different technologies, it can be extremely useful. Actually, you know, you bring up an interesting point about, well, two things. One is it'd be interesting to see if, you know, Elon Musk and the the, uh, SpaceX have been shooting rockets now more and more frequently and more and more cheaply. And one of the things that I think at least half of their flights this year have been sending up their Starlink service. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what that does about connectivity on the job site because it's made to be really low latency, high bandwidth from anywhere. Um, so we'll see. I think we're they're already allowing uh, beta. I'm, I've, of course, have signed up, but we'll see how that goes. But um, You have to let me know if you get into that beta. That's a, that's a hot <laughs> ticket. We'll, we'll do the next podcast via Starlink. <laughs> uh, one of the things that, that, I, that you bring up that's interesting is, is – I did an, uh, a couple of IoT events that were around the built environment five years ago, and getting sensors to do things that were, you know, other than just heat, light, and a few other things was hard because it's not easy for ultrasound or other sensors to really know when that's a person versus a dog versus two legs of a person. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? But what is interesting about stacking these technologies, as you were saying, is now every camera becomes an, actually a pretty amazing sensor. So just cameras you have for security, 
cameras that you have on your phone, cameras that you can easily you know connect up to a system, being able to count people, being able to to just you know to, to understand whether they're this is what SmartVid does, this is what some other folks do too, is being able to to recognize what's in the scene um, has become the has gotten to the point where you don't need to be bristling with different sensors. You can have a few that do an awful lot. And I would I would double down on that and say. I mean, uh, let's just use an example. AWS, uh, Amazon recognition, that's their image recognition software. You know, it's very solid. I'm not going to say it's best. I'm not going to say it's the worst. They can use facial recognition or understand computer vision at a resolution of 50 by 50 pixels. I mean, wow. that that is so distorted and so fuzzy and blurry, yet they're still able to distinguish and, and have their computer vision algorithm understand what's in the scene. So to your point, even your really crappy camera that, that might be really cheap, you know, with paired with the right code and the right algorithms will be able to understand what's going on. Now, this brings up a ton of privacy concerns, especially when we're talking about you know, tracking and facial recognition. Um, but that's how strong the technology is. It does not need to be a, a clear picture. It does not need to be a $5,000 camera, you know, 50 by 50 pixels, and it's going to know what's in that scene. And what's important about that also is that these are APIs that are on tap. So this is a service. I mean, you can't just plug it in. You need a little bit of someone to write something. But you don't need a big AI project to make some of this work. The, the APIs already do a lot of it. You just have to give them some examples and train and kind of tune them, which which is a, a broader point. Um, and that is how a lot of these technologies that seem so, you know, speaking of Tom Cruise, they all, a lot of them seem like Minority Report. And now, not only do they happen, they're not that expensive or difficult to implement. So making the decision to do it isn't like switching from Windows to Mac. <laughs> I, I agree. I, I, the, what, when I talk to clients, I always, if, if the topic comes up of artificial intelligence, as, as you know, it is, you know, the balloon, the, the popular term of all terms, you know, can, the, a lot of companies think AI is the plug socket in your wall. If you just plug the business into it, the, the AI is going to make everything smarter and everything better. Um, but when I try to explain AI, I always start with all, artif all artificial intelligence is, is really the power of prediction. And, the, the, the stronger the algorithm is, the stronger the machine learning is, it's going to be able to predict with certainty a outcome. So if it's image recognition, it's understanding with 99.5% accuracy, that is a employee that is not wearing a helmet right now. Um, if it's just a, a general machine learning algorithm of trying to understand an advertising target, it's going to know uh, Matt lives in New York. Uh, likes sushi and has an 87% chance of ordering from this restaurant tonight, so serve him this ad. So when you think of AI, it really is the power of prediction. And you go back to Minority Report, that was the whole basis of that, that they knew with a high degree of accuracy, a crime might be committed. And why that, that seems like this dystopian future, we're not that far away from it. If you look at all the signals and all the big data of human beings, we're giving out so many signals. And you talk about IoT, you talk about phones, we're, we're giving out so much data that if you have these sets, you can draw some conclusions with high accuracy. So you just go back to the better we can predict, the better we know what's going to happen. Hopefully we're not in Minority Report anytime soon, but you can see a world where our predictions are by AI is pretty, pretty good. Well, that's a, another point to, to cover, and that is that you know, for folks that are thinking about doing this sort of thing, whether it's using AR, which doesn't really have such a privacy uh, uh, element to it, but NFC or um, using, using machine vision to understand what's going on on a job site, you don't have to figure the ethics out yourself. 
this has been, oh my God, it, one of the funny things about the, the kind of AI community is folks that, that don't build that much, but deploy a lot. All they ever talk about is ethics. If you want to, want to get, you would like to go to a webinar about AI, it's a 90% likelihood that they're talking ethics. So, which can be a little, <laughs> cool. but, but also it says to you that there are, there's pretty well thought through guidelines, what, you know, what, whether it comes to, to privacy or whether it comes to the other thing that happens with AI, and that is if you feed it a bunch of, of one-sided data, it's going to be biased, which is what, what people talk about the most. And that's less of an issue for understanding what's going on in the job site in terms of, you know, there's some kind of, a, of an ethnic or racial bias to it. That's less the point. The, the point is how accurately it's recognizing what's going on and predicting what might happen next. And once again, there's been so much work to explore that that it's not you don't have to go to an MIT PhD and to figure it out. There's a lot of people out there, yourself being one of them, who've done this enough that you, you can guide people on on how to execute so they don't wind up with something that is either breaking, you know, kind of privacy norms or um, or it's just ineffective because it keeps thinking that, you know, turtles are hard hats. <laughs> I, I think that's that's fair. And I think when you, you're right. It's just, it's so accessible and so easy now. And I think that's why, why podcasts like this and, and your book that, that's coming out is, is, is so important because if you understand the concepts, if you understand the technologies and, and conceptually what they can do, there's going to be code on GitHub that you can steal and actually help to write that code. Or there's going to be someone you can hire on Fiverr that can probably write you that algorithm. So it's really about understanding the potential and the capabilities of the technology, because the execution, to your point, has become surprisingly easy. Now, granted, it gets harder the more complex you make it, but it is really accessible uh, to do a lot of these things in 2020. I can't believe you just plugged my book. That's awesome. I mean, you, have, I'm just, you haven't plugged it yet for an hour. You have to. I mean, it's the Construction Technology Handbook. How are we not talking about it? Which I'm going to flip to you, because you have more knowledge than I do in this. What, what, which technology are you most excited about in the next five years? You know, it's that's a great one. Um, the reason I, I started asking you about augmented reality is I think that um, we are on the cusp of, of wearable headsets that are really more like glasses. Apple is, is at some point in their life, they're actually going to deliver this thing. You know, they bought their first VR company in 2013. It was oh, actually wow. a German company called Mateo. So they've been at it a long time. Um, they're just, their standards are helpfully high. And I say that because What's out there now, look, the, the HoloLens is, is a great piece of technology, but it's such a narrow little lens, no pun intended, mm. that it's, it's just, it's not, I don't know that it's as ready for prime time as what, what I think we need, which is much wider field of view. So you, basically you can put virtual things anywhere. So I think that, that a, a number of technologies come together and AR is how people will use it the most. So I do think that IoT will become more and more um, a part of this as surprising sources of data like uh, Milwaukee tools has a, they have APIs that, that actually allow you to understand where their tools are, tune them, um, you know, save settings, all sorts of things. But, you know, you, you can suddenly get to a place where you know where all of your tools are, which, which is, can be a big deal on a big, on a bigger site. You also know how they're doing. So you know that this one has been running for six months without maintenance or whatever, mm -hmm. whatever to fix up. But you're seeing the same thing get used in larger machines as well, sometimes as an add-on. So I think data in the job site that gets visualized and immediately useful via an AR headset is, is where I, I think you're going to see 
Um, some really awesome innovation in the next, you know, two two to five years. I think the the we won't probably have a headset or glasses that are that great in 2021. I think we'll have some some op, some options, but uh, I think none of the, the biggest issue right now with AR is the glasses don't work well in in daylight. Um, and no, that's, that's a great point. That's a great point. Obviously, a bit of a limiter, right? Um, and that's one of the things that we know everybody's working pretty hard on. Um, yeah, Hololens gets over that. Like Trimble has a Hololens kit, and they get they get over that by having a visor over it, and it, it it's it's okay. Um, but again, if you're in bright sunlight, it just doesn't work that well. So anyway, to, to round up on 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 uh, on where I see things going is, I think you'll have via AR immediate useful access to an incredible amount of information that's that's operational stuff that's going on right now. I think that voice will mean you can talk to it and and ask it things that are not just move left, move right, but I want to see yesterday's plans that are, you know what I mean, using English words instead of, you know, barking directions at it. Uh, and I think the other thing is, you know, there's a company called, uh, uh, now I'm blanking on it, openspace.ai. They're doing some amazing things about recording the job site every, as long as, as often as you want. It's certainly every day if you want, where it's just a camera that's on someone's hat they hard hat, they walk around and it takes a recording, it meshes it together. So you wind up with this incredible 3D as built that you can go and look back in history. So, you know, if you've, if you've finished the wall and you aren't sure that you put the right things in it, whether it's the, the uh, wiring, the plumbing, whatever, you can go back and look without having to tear the wall apart. That sort of thing is an amazing way to manage a job site. So I think all of these string together where you have a job site that is instrumented that is data rich, but doesn't require a PhD to understand. No, I, I mean, you queued, I queued up the book for you. You queued up OpenSpace AI. OpenSpace and I in Suffolk have been working together for years when they, when they first started. And I firsthand understand that power, you're right, of, of that as built. And not only just for that initial walkthrough, but even as, you know, a lot of these projects, three, five years, right? Like your progress to be able to dive in uh, as a, as a client to then go in and see, like you're seeing the progress essentially in real time and not just seeing the photographs of here's, here we did the pour, here's the crane that got erected. You're actually physically there. And then your point too, you jump into a headset and then you're like actually there. It is such a, a smart technology and you're right. It's as simple as putting on a hat and walking from point A to point B and their technology stitches all of that together into this immersive experience. And closing on that, we're, we're now realizing how valuable open space AI is. We talk about intersection points, we're figuring out, okay, how do we API in the open space to the AR app? How do we power that through visualization, through Power BI? You know, that, that's, I think, the real power is kind of the ability to not only use open space, but then pipe that in to other elements like AR and projects we have, which makes it even more valuable and even more useful. And I think the, the, the maybe the final point here is that all these technologies sound really sexy and really kind of futuristic. And there's got to be some other company who's doing it. I'm not sure it's right for us. You've been talking throughout this podcast about how, um, how use cases need to take the lead. So you're not asking someone to understand AR. You're asking them to do the job they already do with a new tool. And, and a tool that is you know, increasingly not that foreign. It's just speaking or looking or clicking a button to move around. So a lot of these things don't require anywhere near the, the pain of adoption that earlier technologies did. Are you finding that that's, that's resonating? Yes. It, it's, 
it's the kind of the core principle we work from, especially in a world like construction, um, because it, it, it starts with a human, it starts with a PM, it starts with their day to day and what they have to deal with. You're not, you, you cannot revolutionize, you know, exactly what they do. You, you need to find the pain points. And that's what we find when we, I, I use the word reverse engineer, but it's really just understanding the human being, what they do, what, what the issues are and how you can make them more efficient. Um, and, and if you slowly start to solve those small problems, you, you an inch here, an inch here, an inch here, you know, you can get really, really far. And I think that's, that's the key because the reality is when we look at construction as a whole, we know it's disruptible. We know you can come in and you want to do everything, right? You want to boil the ocean to say slap on AR. You need, you should be doing all these technologies and you'll solve everything. But the reality is it's, it's not going to work that way. So, I when I first came in, yeah, you see, there's so much we can do. There's so much we can do. But when you get to the human element, I think it's exactly to what you said. It's just hitting each use case, each individual thing, and you you stack up a lot of those small wins, and all of a sudden, you're you're way out in the future. Matt, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks for taking the time and sharing some of your experience and insight. Hugh, thank you so much. It was wonderful to talk to you.